0: Welcome to Twill and another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. I'm Nicholas Terrier, professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. With all of your free time in between the various European matches, please check out our reports, Assessing Legal responses to COVID-19 available at publichealthwatch.org. On Twitter, please use the hashtag COVIDLawBriefing for any questions or comments in response to this episode. Joining me today are Professor Aniek de Reuter, Professor of European Law at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, Professor Andrew Neume from the University of California, Irving, and Professor Niels Hoppe, the fab from the Faculty for Humanities and Social Science at Leibniz University in Hanover, Germany. So Niels Naniac, when we last spoke, which was in early December 2020, we knew we had a regime change in the US, subject to any insurrections, of course, and that the process of giving emergency approvals to the various vaccines had begun in the US and the UK. We're also seeing the first tragic implications of the winter surge, but we did not at that time know of the alpha variant, which was discovered in the UK just before Christmas. To give further context to today's discussion about international issues, England just delayed its reopening because of the Delta variant. The G7 meeting just concluded with our leaders uh, promising 1 billion COVID vaccine doses for poorer nations, while our borders exist in a colourful range of red, orange, or green travel restrictions. Even as Euro 2020, a delayed a year to enable the fine-tuning of England's all-conquering team has begun, and we're only six weeks away from the Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony. It's almost 18 months since the start of the pandemic, and the US just passed 600,000 lives lost. The European WHO region is closing in on 3 million. From a public health and all law and policy perspective, what have we learned? Are we smarter, better informed about airborne contagion? Do we have a better sense of what can be expected of our fellow citizens and what our public health and legal systems can actually achieve. So with that thought, Andrew, one of your recent tweets was rather pithy. Memo to the IOC. The health of 125 million Japanese citizens is more important than your Olympiad. Almost 18 months into the panic pandemic, can our institutions still operate with such a sort of binary on-off switch,
1: Andrew? It's a challenge. And uh, I, I tweeted that because I was seeing a lot of traffic about how, you know, they're doing this to protect the athletes, they're doing that to protect the athletes. And the athletes are going to be tested, you know, three times a week. And, you know, it's 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 really losing sight of the forest for the trees. I mean, uh, there's going to be people coming to Tokyo from all over the world, including uh, countries that are currently in the throes of, you know, the worst phase of the pandemic, even though, you know, here in the United States, we're currently, in a more lenient, uh, period. And, uh, I, I, just thought, you know, the Olympics were canceled during the world wars. And, uh, th- this is, uh, an event that is killing people comparable to a world war, as you pointed out, Nick, in the introduction. So, you know, why can't the 2020, uh, now 2021 Olympics simply be, uh, you know, uh, canceled. And, you know, the answer is of course, that there's a lot of money at stake, um, among other things. So I, you know, I, I think our, our modern, our 21st century institutions are are uh, are ill poised to, uh, to deal with uh, the pandemic. It's, it's become completely politicized, and uh, not just in the United States, but everywhere. And uh, I I do worry about our ability to deal with you know the, the next pandemic.
0: So any to an extent, I see uh, the the Olympics issue as sort of a group of people in European, I guess it's in IOC headquarters somewhere in Europe, making decisions for another country essentially. In a new paper you use access to COVID medicines, particularly joint procurement, as a sort of frame to examine the current state of European health solidarity. It's a great paper. I put a link in the show notes. It's a complex one. And maybe you could just sort of share a couple of top level insights with us.
2: I was already doing research in uh, health emergencies and the EU because I thought emergencies are an important site for um, potential EU, further EU integration. And EU integration in the field of health, and that means so basically harmonizing national health laws, um, is very difficult because health is such an issue of taxes that are being paid, uh, an issue of solidarity, many great differences with respect to ethics and and, and other very politically sensitive uh, aspects. And so, and solidarity, of course, in the EU in the field of health is very important because all of the systems work based on universal Access to healthcare, um, and so the way that uh, health is access to healthcare is being rationed, etc. Very political as well. So what does it mean if the EU now uh, increasingly has power in this area? Now I thought access to emergency vaccines was an important site for looking at that. What would what would citizens would they agree with sharing emergency vaccines, and and would they agree with and what type of laws would they agree with? And so this was the premise that we had when we when we first started researching before COVID and fielding um, these this this large uh, surveys across the EU in five different countries on what kind of laws and policies would you agree with in case of an emergency if it came down to sharing vaccines um, and then during <laughs> while we were fielding that research um, COVID happened so we were, we were very much uh, confused Used for a little while and what to do. Um, do we stop the research? Do we go on, et cetera? And anyway, uh, lots of um, decisions, but we decided to, to, um, to go on with this research. And actually um, we looked at um, uh, to what extent, basically what we wanted to know, how solidary are European citizens? Do we want to share when, in case, uh, you know, um, um, there is a, a large demand for, for vaccines, would they want to share with other EU citizens so do I, as a Dutch person, want to share my vaccines? Do I feel solidarity with the French or not? Um, that's basically what we asked. And what came out is that Europeans are quite solidarity. So it's not necessarily a matter of citizens not wanting these types of legal arrangements for solidarity. It's mostly a political issue. So it's the difficulty lies at the political level. Um, and citizens were quite uh, accept, um, uh, accepting of, 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 of these types of solidarity arrangements. So this is, I think, important insights for policymakers that in case they want to create more EU integration on joint procurement, so buying vaccines together, but also distributing these vaccines across the European continent, that at least from the perspective of citizens, this type of law would be acceptable.
0: So when we spoke last, uh, we reflected, didn't we, on the the sort of rather knee-jerk response of some EU countries. Is immediately closing borders um, yeah. against the very okay. spirit of, of of the union. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are we to to think that perhaps that's less likely now? Is that one of the lessons we've learned? Totally.
2: So actually, yesterday the European Commission came out with ten lessons learned from uh, from the pandemic. Now to have an emergency system for for when borders need to be closed or when quick decisions need to be made for this at the level of the member states or at the level of the Union, uh, that was one of the first things that was on these 10 list lessons learned. We need to do this better next time, more coordinated, etc. So I'm sure that there, there will be some new laws and regulations to prevent this type of situation from happening again in the future. Yeah.
0: To you, Niels, after the delay of the English unlocking, um, everyone's favourite British newspaper, The Sun, asked, quote, will we ever be free? How prevalent is that sentiment in Europe have national legal systems weighed in on these kinds of, of freedom issues uh, as increasingly we've seen both in lawsuits and also in political um, turmoil uh, in uh, US states
3: mm. well first of all I think it's very charitable of you to call the Sun newspaper um, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there the the whole language that's being used in the UK around this you know freedom day and things like that' at least from the German perspective, is being seen very much as the UK government cosplaying 1944 in lots of its rhetoric, and it's being seen as rather tedious. Um, At the same time, if you look at legal systems and and the mechanisms that they've used, obviously the main mechanism that we've seen in the last 18 months has been one of restricting freedoms left, right and centre. So the question isn't so much, I think, have legal systems weighed in? They have, but they've weighed in on the negative side. The question is then how has um, the population responded in terms of lawsuits against these restrictions of freedoms? You've asked me this. You asked me this question the last time, and I I got some updated figures in relation to that question, in relation to Germany. So uh, these are from March 2020. The German national broadcasters, ZDF, did a survey of judicial reviews in relation to the freedom-restricting mechanisms that were being deployed in the different individual states in Germany, and they recorded uh, 9,951 judicial reviews, individual judicial reviews. They had a response rate of nearly 60 courts across the country, administrative courts, and they always peaks uh, at the times when new measures came in. in April, May last year, in November last year. That's when the main peaks of judicial reviews came in, uh, which isn't very surprising, because if there is a measure that you disagree with, then it's a good idea to issue a claim uh, as quickly as possible and not wait for too long. So from the lawyer's perspective, that isn't a surprising finding. Uh, the surprising finding is that the success rate of these judicial reviews has been very low, between 2 and 10% in relation to these measures. It's been higher in one particular part of this, and that's the, the uh, restricting the right to demonstrate and to assemble in public. Those were the rights where the success rates of the judicial reviews were around 40% plus. So this is where the courts looked specifically at things such as proportionality, explainability, uh, foreseeability of measures, uh, the length of duration of the measures, um, and so on. So I think that's where the courts actually did start to correct some of the measures that the individual legal systems produce. This is obviously only a snapshot of Germany, but my intuition would be that we would have similar types of judicial review uh, across the European continent. And going back to your initial question, um, what have we learned? The last time we met and talked about this. We we're talking about regimes, and I use that uh, word consciously in the UK, in the US, in Brazil, that were particularly hard hit by this pandemic. And one uniting uh, characteristic that these countries had at the time was a policy of uh, national exceptionalism. And I think the one thing that we have learned from this at this point is we're not all going to be safe until we're all safe. And that means uh, we have to stop thinking about getting the vaccines only for our populations. We have to roll them out big style across the world to ensure that the virus is nowhere to go to mutate and to produce new challenges
0: so when we did talk before about public health measures and the legal system the context was primarily with regard to issues such as mask mandates stay-at-home orders social distancing since then as the vaccines at least in in some countries have increased in number we're seeing new issues come up new public health law uh, issues coming up, uh, such as things uh, like vaccine passports. And in the US, there was apparently great enthusiasm at the federal government level uh, for these early on before the politics kicked in and everyone backed away. And in fact, we're even seeing some US states enacting rules banning the use of so-called vaccine uh, passports, so creating problems, for example, for uh, cruises that want to dock in Florida that have mandated the use of of, uh, of these passports or other sort of vaccine requirements. So, Andrew, starting with you, these kinds of things, whether you like to call them passports or not, mandatory testing and so on, are these just temporary artifacts or is this part of the new normal going forward?
1: Well, that's that's really the, the one of the key questions. I mean, and, and- uh, you mentioned the choice of term there. I I do not like the term vaccine passport. And we're seeing here in Orange County, California, the sixth large, uh, most populous county in the United States, we're seeing very low vaccine uptake in uh, Latino men. And, uh, you know, I, I think passport is, is, is an utterly insane choice of, of word for a document that has nothing to do with crossing an international frontier. And we're in a country in which you have a, a, a large immigrant population, which is often, you know, marginalized and uh, so use of the term passport is just a complete, uh, it's just the latest in the series of blunders that the United States has, has done. You know, as we've seen with so-called social distancing, once you start using a term, it's, it just sticks. You know, it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing. But good luck, you know, trying to talk about that. You know, we live in the 21st century now. This is not the 1918 pan- pandemic. And I, I think, you know, businesses that wish to ha- have uh, a vaccine requirement or places of employment that wish to have a vaccine requirement uh, can do. So legally, probably from a public health point of view, should do so, and uh, and they are entitled to uh, to verify uh, in their customers or in their employees that vaccination has happened, and, and to do so beyond the honor system in, in most cases. I'm, I'm I'm very cautious about creating a new electronic record on all of us. I think it needs to be. It, it may need to be done, but it needs to be done with care. In Philadelphia, there was a contact tracing database that was hacked. Why would anyone want to hack a contact tracing database? I don't know. What info? You know, why would anyone care if Person A, you know, said that they spent time with Person B? You know, why is that sensitive? Well, it, it turns out that they added to this contact tracing database a sexual orientation. Why did they do that? Well, it's it's not the best idea, but they did it because out of the desire to make sure that. Uh, that people, you know, from all sexual groups were included. And so now it was hacked, and that is now sensitive information that is out, you know, in the dark web or, or, or whatever the hackers did with it. So I'm, I'm worried about creating some sort of electronic vaccine passport that's going to be a magnet for other unrelated health data that will be linked to us personally, and then will be a target for, for hackers. So, you know, I'm really of two minds on the vaccine passports. I mean, I, I do think uh, institutions aren't title to say, you know, you need to be vaccinated. And I want proof that you're vaccinated. And I want proof beyond the honor system. Um, and, the, and your little cardboard, you know, vaccine card is impractical. But, you know, but we need to be very cautious that, we, that we're not creating a backdoor into uh, our complete um, medical record through some sort of linkage that is then hacked. And you know, then all of a sudden, all our sensitive health information is just out in, in the open. So uh, it, it's quite frankly, uh, Nick, a mess. As far as I'm concerned.
0: So the responsible US agencies have recently issued guidance for employers, for example, saying that it is lawful, you know, with some medical exception carve-outs, it is lawful to uh, require uh, vaccines. It's, is that roughly what's going on in Europe as, as far as sort of as people return to work?
2: Yeah, so there's there are discussions, similar discussions in Europe uh, on all this. And I do think it's one of these we talk a lot about the resilience of health systems, etc. But also, let's not forget about the resilience of the rule of law, the resilience of law in this case. And I do think freedom should be the rule and infringements on freedom should be the exception to that rule. And it seems right now that that uh, I think, I mean, to see the research by Neil saying that we've seen mostly legal cases on the right to demonstrate, which is to me a last straw that citizens have to protect their rights. And it really isn't. I mean, once you it's not like once you've had a demonstration then that's going to solve all your problems. So I do think that uh, indeed uh what Andrew said as well. Um the the basis of public health is trust, right? Because and and it seems right now that that because if, if people don't share their health issues, that they're sick, that is basically the end of any public health system. So as lo- if we start treating all citizens like criminals, you know, I'm over exaggerating, but just to make the point. It's going to be the end of our public health system nobody so the the rule of the protection of the rule of law and the protection of freedom aligns with wanting to protect public health these things are not opposite uh goals right and so i feel like this is this uh, we're going very fast with a lot of these measures and i feel like i would like to see a lot more legal cases and i would like to see this discussion uh to that we would have this discussion on this basis not saying but also how can we serve public Health through law and through protecting laws and through protecting freedoms because that is actually a public health measure um, and so and so I think that it is important that we see more of these legal cases going into court lawyers asking these questions citizens asking these questions because I think we it's a huge discussion and we haven't started it even
0: so do you think uh, maybe coming to you Niels, that public health sort of overplayed its hand this time that it thought it could do a lot more uh, than it- actually could and that the measures that were introduced were just too restrictive allowed for politicization in some countries at least and also sort of led to the fatigue
3: I, I think that the phenomenon that you're describing was part of public health by birth um, public health has always been part of a spectrum of things such as national security that carved out exceptions and certain norms that allowed um, states to derogate from very fundamental rights on the basis of public health so it's been there. It's just that we've as a society been really lucky um, for about 100 years that we haven't been in this situation that we had to derogate from very very fundamental rights on the basis of health. Um, I want to uh, agree with what Andrew said earlier. I think the term passport in the the context of requiring people to provide proof of their health status. The word passport is clearly a word that was coined in this context by privileged people for whom the word passport connotates freedom and nice things and not for people for whom this is a threat to their livelihood. Um, So that's wholly the wrong words entirely. And I, I do agree. At the same time, we do need some sort of system by which we can tell those who are safe and have taken uh, the vaccine from people who have elected not to. So we can create specific measures for people who have elected not to. And those measures may include protecting them in a different way in order to give effect to their right not to take a medical intervention that they disagree with. We still have that. That hasn't entirely disappeared. But in order to make those rules, make those exceptions for those types of people, we need to know who they are. But we need to do that in a finely balanced and very sensitive way. And uh, the paper passports, the paper passes, the paper proofs of vaccination that we have certainly don't come up to scratch in that regard. They're easily forged. we're having huge conversations in Germany about forgeries of these. And that's why we've started introducing uh, electronic means of doing this. And inevitably, because Germany isn't the most advanced country when it comes to digitalization, we're going to get this very, very wrong. And there's going to be a terrible public debate about it. But a lot of the public debate in relation to having to prove your vaccination status reminds me of that Twitter account, Bad Legal Takes, that you must be aware of, which is uh, people are saying, well, this must be unconstitutional to require me to prove my vaccination status. We've had that system in place and it's been constitutionally tested for decades. When kids go to daycare, you show that they've been inoculated against measles. You can take that through different professions. You can say in certain professions where you have close contact with vulnerable populations, your employer can ask you to be vaccinated or not take that job. So we've had these measures. They have been tested in different contexts and you don't have to be a medical lawyer to find the analogies between these different contexts. Um, And then just finally, um, before I've waffled on for too long, Uh, In terms of the original question in relation to public health, public health uh, has has always had this kind of uh, this feeling of wrapping something that sounds like it's an individual right into a right of the many. Think of medical confidentiality. The whole of medical confidentiality is a public health measure. It's got nothing to do with informational self-determination of an individual. It's got something to do with encouraging people to share their health information with the right people in order to protect the many. And we're at exactly the same point, just in a slightly different context. And it's important to not lose sight of that.
0: So I think as we look back, it's become quite clear that during the terrible mismanagement in the US, and I think you could make similar arguments about the UK, particularly some of the stuff that's coming out uh, about the herd immunity issues and, and so on, that the US and the UK made a bet and it was a a long odds bet, but they won, right? The vaccines worked and worked spectacularly. We got really lucky. And our numbers, although awful, have fallen off the cliff recently. A few weeks ago, every U.S. newspaper had like a headline about what was going on in India, Nepal, a little bit later, the Brazilian situation, obviously uh, extraordinary, um, and some reporting about what was going on in sub-Saharan Africa. Those have sort of fallen off our front pages. And I I wondered what, particularly, I guess, from what we saw at the G7, what is going to to be the solidarity response uh, of the West to dealing uh, with um, millions, billions of of persons who are at risk that don't have their own national sort of luck of 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 having sort of the native vaccine. Although of course India has a tremendous vaccine um, production capability, but that's been badly uh, hobbled.
1: Well, I mean, Nick, your your question really goes to the heart of uh, of what you know what the next twenty four months are going to look like. I mean, this is this is uh, going to be a long pandemic. It, it already is a long time. We're in the second pandemic summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. <clears throat> Let me remind the viewers that in 1918, the summer of 1918 was kind of a quiescent period and the summer of 1919, the pandemic was over. So, you know, this is not just a, a replay of, of the 1919 uh, 1918 influenza. And the other thing that American newspapers have been talking about is herd immunity, you know, w- without always understanding what that means. There is no herd immunity. Without international cooperation, the very un- beginnings of our understanding of an ep- in the science of epidemiology of of what herd immunity is be- began in many ways with Panem's studies in the nineteenth century of measles outbreaks in the Faroe Islands, in which he, he discovered that measles went extinct in the Faroe Islands, only to be reintroduced, only to go extinct again, only to be reintroduced. The Faroe Islands are, were back then isolated. There was you know sailing, but with with literal sails uh, was the only way to reach there. And, you know, they would achieve a state of herd immunity from measles and it would go away, but it would be reintroduced and, and, and it, the process would repeat itself. You know, today we have travel all over, all over the world through into airplanes. You know, we can achieve herd immunity as misunderstood as that is in the United States or in wherever. But as long as there's communication of people uh, worldwide, you know, we're going to have a problem. And uh, we, we talked about variants a little bit earlier in the, in the pod. It is so important that we have international cooperation to vaccinate um, not just the United States and other countries that were early adopters. And and you're right. I mean, the United States... You know gambled and won we placed an all-in bet on a single strategy and and we we drew a royal flush and that's basically what happened but you know you can't argue with success i guess so but we need more we need more international cooperation we need to vaccinate everyone or else we're never going to achieve meaningful uh her, herd immunity anywhere
0: any yeah, we 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 have had discussions about intellectual property issues here um is are those issues sort of relatively ephemeral and will disappear or are those legal structures really uh, major barriers to um, uh, increasing uh, our uh, outreach to other countries?
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm not an intellectual property expert or anything like that, but I do think that what was now decided at the G7 is, of course, not really what one would like to see because it, it is kind of denigrating in a way. You give away a, a bunch of the vaccines you probably don't need anymore and um, uh, and you don't allow people to 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 make their own vaccines you know and 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 also to to then use that to create an infrastructure uh because it's it's not just just um uh, yeah so so uh i think that that discussion will not die down i think right now we had the unfortunate situation of the german uh the the the, the germans in europe really not wanting to budge on this so politically this was a no go i mean I, I still think it's a no go even and the pressure is you know if you just hold on long enough, time will time will help you politically. So I think right now, I don't see so much in the newspapers about it anymore. So, But I do think this discussion will come back and will be more easy in the abstract. So I think when we now see that there's going to be a discussion about a pandemic treaty and all of these things are being rehashed and rediscussed, then I think there is a potential for creating some kind of mechanism for when this happens in the, in the future. But then it's an abstract, you know, legal, political, debate uh, and that will be easier I think um, rather than having invested so much already, and um, yeah.
0: So Niels, feel free to uh, to uh, to comment on on that and the German position. Um, but also, let's begin sort of our final round of, uh, of questions. Um, and we started by talking about lessons learned. What happens this winter um, when we all leave the healthy outdoors and once again huddle in front of Netflix? Um, Offices call back their employees. Our schools and universities return in person. Um, I'm returning to the classroom. Our university had a vaccine mandate, and it will be interesting. Um, but what happens in the winter, Niels? You're, you're first up.
3: Right. Um, I'll say, if I may, I'll say a little bit about the intellectual property issue in just a moment. But just to answer your question, I, I had an email today from my university telling me to prepare for an in-person teaching semester come the autumn and the winter. Um, and I'm if I've learned one thing in the last eighteen months that I try not to speculate too much because it always ends up being slightly different. But the one trajectory that we may be able to see is that we're getting this wrong every single time. And uh, I think this goes back to our conversation we've had about vaccinating the world and making sure that as many people as possible have access to vaccines. Because uh, there are going to be more mutations. And at the moment, it seems that we are lucky in the sense that the alpha and the delta mutations are still something that can be uh, fended off using the vaccines that we have. They're still efficient and effective to a certain extent. There will inevitably be, unless we vaccinate everyone, a mutation which is going to circumnavigate the vaccine protection that we have developed. And, and maybe as, as a small side note, we've heard the word luck and royal flush a couple of times now in relation to where we are. That's not all luck. Yeah, That's, I think we shouldn't take too much away from team science here. Uh, as, as a scientific community, global scientific community, we've really done incredible things in the shortest amount of time, taking massive risks as well along the way, and we mustn't forget that. But it's not just luck. There's also a lot of science involved that we that we uh, spend decades and, and centuries developing. And this maybe leads on to um, the, the point on intellectual property. I, I might sort of just slightly and respectfully disagree um, with this idea that um, unlocking the patents to the rest of the world and allowing them to produce their own um, compounds, their own vaccines, is actually going to solve the problem. It may seem attractive at this point to do so, but I think the German position very much hinges on the fact that um, there's a long-term strategy behind it, and that is, what about the next pandemic? If we can't find the BioNTechs and the Pfizer's and all of the other big companies that make their money based on patent exploitation downstream, to underpin and underwrite and finance these types of developments. And I'm not going to go into the tedious sums that we all know, the 1 billion euros it costs to get something from bench to bedside and so on. But we're talking about a huge amount of private investment and private know-how that goes into development of these types of things. And that played a role in how lucky we were in developing this in 12 months. And if we now take away the one thing that actually we have established in the past, and that's where the error may lie in our ways, the one thing we've established in the past that incentivizes this by giving them a return on investment through intellectual property mechanisms, uh, then I think we may actually be shooting ourselves in the foot for the next time that we need the pharmaceutical in- in- industry to help us with this. The, the, so the answer may not lie in in some sort of TRIPS-based compulsory licensing threat over the pharmaceutical industry. The, the, the solution may lie in the nationalisation of the purchasing of vaccines rather than the nationalisation of the production of vaccines. So I, I'm not entirely convinced yet that giving up the patent protection for these uh, vaccines is actually the answer.
2: Yeah, I, would, I agree. I and I think that the next, I mean, what should we focus on in, in, in the future um, when it comes to these issues? It's it's not only vaccines, it's emergency vaccines, but also antibiotics. So there are some of these um, medicines um, uh, that are basically they're public goods. And I, I don't see how, I mean, I'm sure there should always be public-private partnerships and things like that, but who should be in the lead on this? And, uh, and in the next 50 years, if we run out of antibiotics, are we really going to leave that uh, 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 to the private industry? I mean,
0: are you uh, are you back in the classroom? In
2: yes, uh, uh, I hope so. I hope so. I very much enjoy um, direct interaction with students. So yes, I hope so. Excellent.
0: All right, Andrew, last word uh, to you. Yeah. What happens this winter?
1: Well, I mean, it's 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 true that it's not pure pure luck uh, that the, the the way the vaccines work. That there's a lot of you know science that went into that. I, I am. Back Back in the classroom in the fall, and I'm looking forward to it. And uh, at least at first, I'm not apprehensive about it because I'm vaccinated and and I you know have seen the vaccine data and, and it works. And, uh, but you know th- this is you know I've always said, and, and the, the viewers can can through my, uh, my old tweets about about this subject, going back to February of 2020. I said there was going to be sort of like a chaotic phase, and then it was going to become a seasonal phenomenon. And, and so we're leaving the chaotic phase, and it, and it's becoming a winter dominant seasonal phenomenon, uh, like like influenza. Of course, the tropics are somewhat different, but, um, you know, we're going to have more COVID next winter in the United States than in Europe, full stop, you know, and uh, hopefully that uh, an, an, a yet another variant won't be mixed in there. And uh, hopefully, although this is sort of may sound naive, that the states will will catch up to one another in terms of vaccination rates over the summer. Well, it sort of doesn't really matter if you're at still at 20% vaccination because transmission is very low right now and hopefully by september all 50 united states will be at you know 85 percent vaccination i don't think that will come to pass but um you know so i mean this is going to become a seasonal farm there's going to be covid in the winter time uh for for decades uh probably increasingly uh mild as as time wears on but um you know w- winter is going to to be uh interesting and the and the other thing that is uh is going to be a, a huge and hugely contentious topic is going to be vaccination for people under the age of 12
0: so as the phrase goes winter is coming well thank you to my guests and thank you to all of you for for watching or listening today uh, the recordings are available on the public health law of website and are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at twill.com. We'll see you next time. Please get vaccinated when you can and please stay safe. Bye.